Hier komen wij in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio, the podcast where we talk about politics, theory and activism from a revolutionary socialist perspective. I'm Chloe Rafferty. And I'm Emma Norton. We're recording this podcast on stolen Gadigal land. And today we're talking about the struggle against Javier Millet's attacks on the working class in Argentina. We spoke to Jasmine Duff, a socialist activist from Australia who has spent the past couple of weeks at demonstrations, strikes and workers' assemblies in Buenos Aires. But first on the situation in Palestine and the Middle East. The Israeli army is now laying siege to cities in the south like Khan Yunus and they have plans uh, to roll into Rafah, which is the southernmost city of Gaza, uh, soon. Um, There was also recently in Israel a massive Israeli settler conference that was attended by a third of Netanyahu's cabinet. And this conference basically consisted of uh, far-right uh, settlers and, and their supporters in Israeli society who are demanding that the war end um, in Gaza with the settlement, resettlement of parts of Gaza by uh, Israelis. Um, so they're openly at that conference calling for um, the ethnic cleansing of Gaza entirely, what they call the voluntary resettlement um, of uh, Palestinians from the Gaza Strip and to send settlers in, um, in their place. Yeah, and the other big uh, news recently um, on the war on Gaza was the ICJ ruling. Um, And this ruling um, has partly uh, vindicated what Palestinian activists have been saying uh, all along since the invasion of the Gaza Strip, that what Israel is doing in Gaza amounts to a genocide. And this has partly been vindicated by the ICJ ruling, which found that, and I quote, At least some of the acts and omissions alleged by South Africa to have been committed by Israel in Gaza appear to be capable of falling within the provisions of the Genocide Convention. So this is obviously a pretty major public relations setback for Israel. Um, Israel and its allies have absolutely railed um, against the decision of the ICJ. I think it is important, though, for socialists to say that this ruling does not go anywhere near far enough. And really what's missing from it um, is kind of... uh, Uh, tells you a lot about the limitations of trying to seek justice through any United Nations institutions like the International Court of Justice. So the ruling did not call for a ceasefire. So that effectively means they say there's a credible case that Israel is carrying out a genocide, but they haven't actually ordered Israel to stop the war itself. Um, They've just said, oh, yep, come back to us in a month's time um, with some evidence that you're not committing uh, genocidal acts. Obviously, the uh, case will continue on. Um, And one of the Big things uh, that they ordered uh, was that Israel uh, provide more humanitarian aid um, for Gaza, which we'll talk a bit more about that, but the exact opposite of that is happening. So I think aside from the fact that this ruling, um, you know, has not actually called for um, an immediate ceasefire, I think one of the other important points to make is that Israel and the US will just ignore it. Israel and the US have actually just ignored the directives that the ICJ have made, um, you know, to provide more aid uh, for Palestinians in Gaza. And this is just in keeping with Israel and the US's behaviour towards all rulings uh, that they don't like, uh, coming out of the UN General Assembly, coming out of the ICJ. And this has really hit home in the days uh, following the ICJ ruling, uh, where Israel have uh, come out uh, with these accusations against the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, and that has been followed with um, Western uh, countries like the US, Australia and Canada withdrawing funding uh, from this key institution that is one of the only uh, institutions providing humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza. Yeah, it's really appalling and it's so obviously about trying to discredit a UN agency in light of another UN agency, the ICJ, the the Court of International Court of Justice, uh, making this ruling, however tepid it was, um, and they're trying to you know discredit UNRWA in particular. And some of the Israel uh, Israeli politicians' attacks on UNRWA are just absurd and insane. So. Um, The finance minister said that UNRWA is part of the Hamas murder machine. Um, It's a direct quote. And there's been things like that littered throughout the um, the international press. So it's really an attempt to discredit um, the UN and, you know, to make it seem like there's a there's a conspiracy against uh, the, you know, poor victim of Israel uh, by UN agencies. 
Um, and Western governments defunding the uh, UN Relief and Works Agency in response has been appalling. This is like as Gaza's all of its healthcare system and all of its uh, facilities are basically collapsing in the face of the Israeli assault and Western governments have defunded the one institution on the ground that was capable of, of providing uh, aid. And that includes the Australian government. And this is something that even like the supposed left politicians in Labor have been supporting. So one of my least favourite politicians in Australia actually is um, Jed Carney, who's the member for Cooper in Melbourne. Um, and she is a good example of this kind of dressing up every horrific Labor decision in the last few months as somehow humanitarian and progressive. So um the thing that popped up on my Instagram from her was a, a series of slides about Labor's decision to completely defund UNRWA um, because of these allegations. Uh, and she it's kind of couched in all of these, um, uh, these language about how essential UNRWA has been uh, in providing relief and social services to Palestinian refugees um, bragging about how Labor has, you know, increased core funding to UNRWA after coming into government and so on, but then defending down the line to the letter Labor's position of actually defunding it because of this um, campaign by Israel and the US against it. So um, pretty appalling stuff given the horrific situation that people in Gaza are facing. And let's put this into context. The accusations against a very small number of UNRWA workers um, in Gaza that, you know, there's been no investigation into whatsoever, that is cause for the immediate cessation of funding to this vital humanitarian service by Australia, America, a whole series of um, Israeli allies. And yet uh, over 100 days of a genocidal war being carried out by Israel, uh, the death tolls now above 27,000 in Gaza, you know, that we know of, uh, not even counting the people buried under the, the rubble. That's not caused to cut off any of the massive military funding uh, that, you know, America is giving um, to Israel, a whole series of countries around the world. So it just shows, you know, how starkly uh, these Western governments are willing to go all the way down the line with Israel, including effectively participating now in the blockading um, of Gaza with the cutting off of these human humanitarian funds. Another clear example of just the absolute hypocrisy of uh, Western governments is the US-led bombing campaign against the Houthis in Yemen. Now, this is just, uh, you know, Marxists couldn't, you know, make this up if we tried. <laughs> yeah. Just such a clear indication of what uh, the imperialist interests of countries are and how that absolutely overrides any concern for human life, any concern, you know, humanitarian concerns. Uh, this uh, bombing campaign against one of the poorest countries in the world is actually called Operation Prosperity Guardian. Uh, and, yeah, that pretty Orwellian title is pretty much what it is. So the Houthis um, who have been in solidarity with Gaza are blocking some shipping in the Red Sea, uh, shipping that is uh, connected uh, to Israel, um, you know, that said they're going to continue to do this uh, as long as Israel's war in Gaza continues. Uh, you know, this has not killed, uh, taken any lives thus far. It certainly hasn't killed, taken 27,000 lives like Israel's war um, has claimed. But what it has done is hit uh, something that US imperialism actually cares about, which is not Gazan children's lives. Um, it's profits. It's This is a major trade route um, for gl uh, global capitalism. In particular, it's an important trade route uh, for uh, seabound oil. Um, and so this is actually what, you know, uh, makes Biden and Albanese and other Western leaders sit up and notice. Um, and let's uh, put this in its context as well. This bombing campaign um, against Yemen, um, which is included at uh, targeting um, of the capital city of Sana'a, this comes off the backdrop of a decade-long war in Yemen. So Yemen's already been devastated uh, by, you know, more than a decade of civil war, as well as intervention um, by the Saudis and other uh, Arab states backed by uh, the West that has called, you know, hundreds of thousands killed in the process of this war from both, you know, uh, war deaths as well as famine. This is the context in which we've seen uh, the West can, uh, now directly um, involved in, in bombing targets in Yemen. Yeah, it might be worth going into a bit of the history of this Western-backed Saudi Arabian war on Yemen. Um, I think a way of seeing it is basically Saudi Arabia's uh, decade-long intervention into Yemen um, to 
prevent revolution basically and to um to stop uh, what had been a democratic uprising in 2011 a revolution against the dictator Saleh who'd been in power for something like you know three decades um, and Saudi Arabia backed the counter-revolutionary Hadi regime which came into power um, after that revolution to crush that revolution and when that regime was toppled by yet another popular democratic revolt in 2014 which the Houthis sort of rode to power in Sanna. Saudi Arabia and the UAE, backed by uh, Western countries, including, you know, obviously the US and Britain and France, basically invaded and firebombed the country to try to maintain their puppet regime, the the Hadi regime, um, which is still in power in parts of the country today. Um, And Saudi Arabia received a lot of Western backing for this horrific war. Um, They received weaponry, advice, um, you know, military advice uh, for that devastating war. They... Um, quite famously, and this is something that actually the um, Western powers are doing again now, they bombed the main port of Yemen uh, called Hadida, and that was part of what led to a massive famine across the country because most of the um, food imports, I think 70% of the country's food imports, went through that port and um, it was it received you know particular attention from Saudi Arabian uh, forces. But this war that lasted almost a decade, it was kind of like Saudi Arabia's Iraq war. They weren't really able to win. They weren't able to impose their control over the entire country despite their brutality. Um, And they've had to negotiate in the last couple of years a fragile peace with the Houthis. Um, And so, you know, now Yemen doesn't really exist anymore. The Houthis control parts of it, uh, the the western part and uh, northern part. Um, and the Saudi-backed uh, regime controls other parts of it. So it's really ripped the country apart and, and destroyed um, people's lives, hundreds of thousands of people's lives uh, for the sake of, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia maintaining a kind of stable counter-revolutionary regime there. Yeah, and I think it's really important for us to absolutely oppose the US-led bombing um, of Yemen um, and particularly because our government has, uh, Albanese has rushed uh, to back this. At the same time, I think it's important for leftists to, uh, to say that there's nothing progressive about the Houthis as a, as a force. Uh, they're a section of the northern elite, um, a very the counter-revolutionary outfit in their own right, um, have played that role um, in uh, Yemen. And in 2015 to 2017, they actually allied with the old brutal dictator Saleh, even though they had been at war with him uh, previously. So really shows the kind of role that they've played in the kind of machinations of that civil war process. Um, and today in the areas of Yemen, much of Yemen that they control, they imposed you know, dictatorial conditions on the population, a really uh, reactionary rule. So their Palestinian acts, you know, the acts of solidarity, um, is really uh, popular in Yemen. There have been some really large demonstrations. I think like one of the roles that it, um, this has played for the Houthis is to try and deflect discontent because there actually um, has been a lot of anger um, at their rule. Um, so I think that's uh, an important thing to say that like this is not uh, you know the force that is going to bring liberation um, in the region as much as we should oppose the totally hypocritical um, uh, acts coming out um, of the West Um, and, you know, the bombing campaign um, on Yemen. I think the other thing to say is that the Houthis are not just a puppet of Iran. Um, They do get some uh, support um, from Iran, but really their actions are motivated by the local conditions going on in Yemen. Um, But this rhetoric uh, from the West talking always about them being um, Iranian uh, proxies, I think is part of a dangerous uh, increase in... Uh, tensions and hostilities going on across the region uh, that mean that, um, it, you know, it, it, there is a real danger of conflict spilling out beyond just the Gaza uh, border um, and the possibility of a regional war or war, um, war in other parts of the Middle East. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a dangerous situation for that reason, even though I think when, when you know, US officials say things like we don't want a broader regional war, think they can genuinely mean that. I don't think they want to be, um, you know, buried in another Middle Eastern quagmire of a war like Iraq or Afghanistan. But um, that's kind of not how capitalism works. Sometimes wars happen, even if various actors, including like Iran, which does not want to try and fight uh, uh, the US in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia certainly don't want a war. Uh, the UAE certainly don't. 
But even so, the, um, there's a dangerous kind of uh, dynamic and brinkmanship that can, that can cause a war anyway. Um, there are certain actors as well that are more interested in um, pushing things to the limit and, and to the brink, like Israel, who um, have been bombing, you know, southern Lebanon and kind of uh, trying to provoke responses, I think, in, in some of the surrounding countries, obviously um, the war on Gaza as well. So there's even when various actors are trying to, in some ways, prevent a war, they can still be dragged into them because there's a certain logic where they have to respond to each other's aggression. Um, and you see that in what the West has done. Obviously, it's a really uh, dangerous move that destabilizes the region for them to just start bombing like the capital of Yemen and the port of Yemen. Um, but you know, from their perspective, how can they not respond to um, the disruption of shipping in, in the um, Red Sea? So this is kind of part of the dynamic that we talk about a lot on this podcast of imperialist um, conflict and competition that can lead to war, even when actors are saying and meaning that they don't actually they don't want a war. Yeah, it's just a perfect example of just how irrational capitalism is as a system that, you know, this is, uh, you know, the logical conclusion um, of imperialism that each of these states um, acting in their own competitive interests coming into conflict with each other. And in this particular scenario, I agree, I don't think any of these states are particularly uh, wanting the conflict to spill out beyond the Gaza Strip. But this is a very real possibility. And we've already seen um, you know, a whole series of states uh, uh, in the context of the Gaza war having airstrikes against each other. So Turkey against the Kurds in Syria, um, Iran against Pakistan, Pakistan against Iran. And we're just seeing a massive increase in volatility. And I think that Israel's genocidal war in Gaza um, in some ways has legitimized this action, like Israel's you know, assassinating a Hamas leader um, in Beirut. All of this just puts us uh, closer and closer in the position uh, where broader conflict is a real possibility, which could be devastating to the people um, of the Middle East. And I think that's why it is important to be critical of institutions like the United Nations, as much as, you know, we all, you know, also watched <laughs> as the ICJ ruling came out and like, good to see, you know, a black eye for Israel um, in a rhetorical sense, but these institutions are, have never been capable of holding back the tide when those sorts of conflicts have spilled out. The, the, these institutions are incapable of stopping the war that's already going on now. I think it's going to be up to uh, the working class globally um, and the, particularly uh, the working masses um, of the Middle East. Um, and I think here in the West, we have such an important role to be playing um, to come out in solidarity with Palestine, but also to oppose all acts of aggression by our own government. And that includes Australia um, and the Labor government um, who have fully backed the bombing of Yemen down the line. Our well, I'm here with Jasmine Duff. Jasmine is a socialist uh, from Australia and she's one of our writers for Red Flag newspaper. And she's currently in Argentina in Buenos Aires. And she's been there since the uh, election, almost since the election of Millet. And she's been involved in a bunch of workers' meetings, meetings of the left who are um, organising resistance to Millet's horrific neoliberal attacks. Welcome, Jasmine. So good to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Emma. No worries. So what have you been up to recently? Oh, good. Um, so much. Every It's honestly crazy here like every single day is a new protest or assembly or um, meeting yesterday I was at this assembly of workers from the cultural sector at the front of the congress um, in Buenos Aires and yeah there was around a thousand workers there they had these big debates in different sections and committees um, about uh, what to do, how to fight Malay, um, how to uh, participate in the general strike that's coming up, whether they should march with the official bureaucracy of the main union um, that is called the strike or whether they should march independently of that union. Um, so there's a lot of not just protests going on but, yeah, organising and debating and trying to figure out how to go forward. Yeah, sounds like exciting times. Um, well, maybe for people who don't know, you could explain a little bit a bit about who Malay is and how he won this election with what is a really mm. cutthroat neoliberal program. Yeah. Well, so Malay is um, a far-right figure. He's someone who's 
you know, presents himself as a bit of a maverick. Um, he tries to really model himself after Trump. Um, and he's part of a relatively new party called um, Liberty Advances. He's not someone who's got this kind of long-term establishment um, in politics in Argentina. He's a relatively new figure. He's someone who has just kind of popped up um, and managed to sweep with him a bunch of sentiment. But I think in particular the reason that he won this election is because of the state of the economic crisis in Argentina. Um, You have massive, massive inflation. At the moment it's around 143% per year and also huge poverty. Over 42% of people live in poverty. All of that has been presided over by governments of the centre-left. And so Malay was elected uh, in a runoff election. It came down to him and one other candidate. That candidate was Sergio Massa. Massa was the economic minister that presided over the 42% poverty rate, um, the 143% rate of inflation. Um, He presided over, you know, people's lives getting worse and worse in Argentina This guy was presented as the main candidate by the capitalist class in this country and people voted against him. People voted in protest against Massa, um, the kind of establishment candidate for Millet, this maverick far-right figure. And I think a big part of the reason for Millet's win is the role that the centre-left has played in this country in presiding over the economic crisis in a way that is about punishing ordinary people for the crisis rather than punishing the rich. So one of Malay's big promises before he came into power was, I'm going to make what he called the political caste pay for the crisis. Similar kind of language to Trump's, I'm going to drain the swamp. Um, He said, I'm going to make the political caste pay. What he's doing right now, though, is making workers and the poor pay. So can you tell us a little bit about what the content of these attacks are? So Malay has put through two important packages of bills since he was elected. He was only elected in uh, late November, and so his government is around two months old. These two packages of bills propose massive restructures of Argentine society. So they include things like big crackdowns on the right to protest and the right to strike, uh, huge economic changes, privatisations. All state-owned corporations and enterprises will be opened up to privatisation by these bills. As well as that, in Argentina, there's a whole series of social democratic rights that people have access to that were gotten rid of through the process of neoliberalism in the 80s and 90s in most countries. In Argentina, a lot of those rights still exist and they're now what Malay is trying to strip back. So that includes, on the one hand, a lot of publicly owned enterprises, things like you can go to watch a film at the nationalised cinema complex and the film that you watch will be something that was produced and funded with state money. Education here is free. It's free not only for domestic students but also for international students. There's a big uh, free state-run health system um, and so on. So a lot of important public goods, these things will now be opened up to privatisation and that will affect everyone's lives, but particularly the working class and the poor. As well as that, um, there's a lot of working rights that will be under attack now. So things like they're going to try and extend the period of time people can be on trial for uh, a trial period um, when you're at work so that it's easier to sack people early on in their lives. They're going to make changes to the pension system that attack retirees. Already here, a lot of the taxi drivers are people who worked for their whole lives and now are 80 and are driving a taxi because the pensions are so low. Those pensions will now be reduced even more and some of the insurance schemes that exist for retired workers are being scrapped entirely. So it's a huge kind of wholesale economic attack that is the biggest economic restructuring since dictatorship, which governed Argentina until uh, 1983. So on the one hand, you have the, the economic level of the attacks. An important other aspect, though, is that they are an attack on democracy. So the two bills Malay has put through, 
One of those is called the decree of necessity and urgency. It's called a decree because he circumvented parliament to put it through and has tried to put it through only as an executive decree through the presidency. That type of power, putting something through just through the presidency, um, is is very different here. It's not normal practice in Argentina. It's anti-democratic. It goes against the usual democratic practices. And for people in this country, that really means something because democracy here was only won recently. It was won in living memory for people who are uh, 50, 60, and so on. It was won in the 80s through a mass struggle against a dictatorship. And so the idea that you could now have a president who goes against the existing democratic institutions, that's a real blow and people really feel it. And that's part of what is driving the opposition to what Malay is doing, not only the content of the attacks, um, but the anti-democratic way that he's doing it. And at the same time as doing that, his two packages of bills will also restructure the democratic system to make it easier for political parties that are wealthier to win elections. Um, So they'll do things like getting rid of the ceiling on donations that parties can accept, changing the actual structure of elections in the order of how they happen, getting rid of free advertising space for political parties, um, and so on. So there's, there's kind of two parts to it, the economic part that restructures society, but also the big anti-democratic attacks, which target the electoral system and also protests and also the ability of workers to strike. These things are part of what makes it possible um, to carry out the economic attacks if they go through. Yeah. So, I mean, could you summarise for us, like, why Millet is doing this? Obviously, I mean, he's a right-wing piece of shit who hates the working class but these are really dramatic attacks um, and like you said it's sort of unprecedented in the last few decades at least in in Argentina so why why is he doing this and why now well the most immediate reason is that there's an economic crisis so inflation sits at uh, as I said before around 143 percent a year you really feel it this month there was around 30 percent inflation it's higher than that um, in some goods. The currency is just being rapidly, rapidly devalued. Prices are all over the place and constantly changing. And as well as that, the country is in uh, masses of debt to the International Monetary Fund. The International Monetary Fund is putting pressure on the country um, to restructure the economy. They've come out very strongly in favour of Malay's packages. But as well as that, there's a longer-term dynamic. So... For many, many years, you've had various governments in Argentina that have tried to attack the working class and take away the right to strike, the right to protest. They've tried to make it more normal that police can repress protests when they happen. And they've tried to take away the power that the working class has in this country. One of the things that sets Argentina apart from a lot of the rest of the world is they haven't been able to do that. Every single time that governments here propose serious economic attacks, the workers' movement takes it up, goes out into the streets. General strikes, unlike in the rest of the world, are not totally rare in this country. Um, There's been a whole series of general strikes in 2014, in 2017. In 2017, there was big general strikes where the workers all went out and fought the police day after day. So, the scale of and power of the working class movement here has protected a lot of very important social democratic rights. And now the capitalist class through Malay are trying to defeat that working class movement, set it back so that they can get away with the type of economic changes that they're going to need to put through in the future to resolve the economic crisis in favour of the rich. Mm. So given all that, what has the response been like to the attacks? I know Millet won the election fairly comfortably, but there's obviously also been a huge um, outrage and resistance to the attacks even very early on from the moment he got into power. Um, and I know you've been like interviewing workers and, and left-wing people in the streets and stuff. So yeah, what, what have people been saying about it? So Millet's first package of attacks was announced on TV on the night of the 20th of December. Um, And I got back to the place that I was staying and my landlady was watching on TV the announcement 
um, Malay on TV announcing we're changing everything, we're ripping it all up and starting it again. This is going to change everyone's lives, the attacks that I'm announcing right now. She was distraught, my landlady. Like she kind of looked at me and was like, they're ruining this country. This was late at night. It was around 10 o'clock at night. As soon as that announcement happened, we started hearing people banging pots and pans all around the place in houses uh, everywhere nearby. Banging pots and pans is a kind of traditional uh, form of protest in Argentina that was built up over the course of the 2000s that is kind of what middle-class people tend to do when they want to protest. So people bash pots and pans in their houses. I went outside um, trying to see if there was anyone protesting outside. I walked out and there was a group of five people walking past my door. So I joined in with them and we like wandered around the streets, bashing pots and pans for a while, doing chants, just us, just five people walking around. And I kind of was wondering, like, I wonder what these people are looking for. (laughs) And so eventually we came to a group. Um, Eventually we came to uh, a massive traffic jam and we kind of looked at each other and we're like, oh, we reckon we know what's behind this traffic jam. And so we ran and ran and ran, like following the the parked cars um, that were all beeping their horns. And in front of all of the parked cars was a protest of a couple of hundred people all bashing pots and pans. They had kids with them, a lot of people. And as they marched, more and more and more people started coming out of their houses because you hear the noise of the pots and pans in the streets, you come out and you join in. And so as we marched, um, more and more people joined. Eventually that block got to be about 600 people and we marched to the Congress and already people were singing some of the main chants that have been going on in the, the struggle since then. So um, one of the big ones is uh, La Patria no se vende, which means the, the homeland is not for sale. There were chants against Malay as well. A lot of them were made out of football chants but kind of targeted at Malay. And so we got to the Congress and saw another couple of thousand people outside the Congress building charging towards us because we'd, you know, come there from the suburbs and they could see us exciting. And so they kind of like ran towards us and we all joined this like one big protest and more and more similar groups came from different suburbs until that protest um, outside of the Congress had, I think, around 100,000 people, just a sea of people. I've never seen that many people in my life. Yeah. (laughs) So it's just completely spontaneous, basically. People hear pots and pans and run out of their houses and stuff. That's incredible. Totally spontaneous. Yeah, 100%. But people people kind of know what's going – like you hear the pots and pans and you're like, I know what's happening. There's a protest. I'm going to join it. So you know what's going on. But, yeah, you're called out just by individuals around you. Um, and yeah, when we were at Congress, everyone's like storming the the fence of the Congress, climbing up it. I was up it for quite a long time as well with <laughs> all of these young people. Um, at one point, like a couple of people from um, one of the main like socialist organizations here climbed up the fence to like tape on this um, sign that they'd made calling for a general strike. Um, th- th- down the bottom, there's these people just like pulling at the fence, trying to break it down. But it's a very... Wow fancy high-tech fence <laughs> <laughs> so we could not break it down but we tried <laughs> maybe one day um, maybe one day on your question about spontaneity one of the important things is that as soon as May malay was elected his security minister announced these like really repressive anti-protest rules that she was just bringing in um and people were very genuinely scared. So people really thought, like, if you go out into the streets, you'll get bashed, you'll get put in prison. Um, And one of the important things that made that protest in the night, that spontaneous protest, one of the things that made it possible was that that same day the left had had a huge protest before any of the attacks were announced that was about opposing and cracking through that anti-protest law. So when I first got to Argentina, um, I got to the airport at about 4 a.m. and walked out of the airport and there was like 300 riot cops all in black with guns and like rifles um, and massive shields having a meeting about the protest that day because they were all going to go. I was like, this is fascism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Um, And so it's, 
you know, and people had this real fear of these fucking cops, like they're terrifying. Um, but yeah, that day, the revolutionary socialist organizations that make up the left in Argentina held a protest that tens and tens of thousands of people came to that filled one of the main squares and marched on the streets and broke the anti-protest law. And that was everywhere. Every major news channel covered that. And so even though the protest in the night was spontaneous and a response to the announcement of the attacks, at the same time, space was really opened up for it by the revolutionary left who marched that day and showed it's possible to go out into the streets without getting bashed by cops, without being imprisoned. That gave people confidence and meant that in the night, people just left their houses with abandon. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the official general strike that's been called, and that's been called by the yeah, like the official unions. Why is that so important? The importance of the general strike is that it means all over the country, workers will be shutting down workplaces. It's not just a protest; it will shut down company after company, supermarkets, farms, private enterprises, factories, hospitals society will be totally ground to a halt by the general strike. And that's part of the importance of, you know, the working class and working class struggle. The thing that sets it apart from just normal protests is that people can really shut down all of the machinery of capitalism when they strike. So it's, yeah, pretty exciting. Um, People expect around 500,000 to a million people to march in Buenos Aires at the same time. But there'll also be marches in every city and town around the country. And I think, I mean, one question I had was like, it's it wasn't guaranteed that the unions that are led by fairly moderate, um, you know, supporters of the kind of Peronist centrist uh, party, it, was, there was, it wasn't automatic um, that they would call a general strike in response to these attacks. Why do you think they've mm-hmm. done that? I think they've done it in response to the mass spontaneous pressure from below combined with the really explicit demands of the left. The left, from the moment that Malay announced these attacks, the left was pushing for a general strike. Um, So in that big demonstration in the night where people were bashing pots and pans outside Congress, one of the biggest chants was, paro, 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 paro general, which means, you know, we call for a general strike. One of the other main chants in the streets um, that same night was uh, it goes, where is it? We can't see it. The famous CGT. The CGT is the main trade union federation here. It's quite right wing. It runs the unions in a very top-down bureaucratic way. It stops a lot of organic rank-and-file organising wherever it can. Um, And it is very well known for not standing up to attacks by governments, for not lifting a finger, for letting people just get trampled on. So there's a lot of widespread mass anger at the CGT and the people who run it. At the same time, um, there's this real mass sentiment of we want to stand up to these attacks um, and push back against them. And then also there's these various revolutionary socialist organisations that work quite closely together and have a big presence in the unions um, who are saying we want a general strike, we have to fight seriously, now's the time to do it. All of that combined meant that the people who run this big trade union federation felt like for us to save face and also for us to seem, you know, legitimate going forward, we need to call a general strike. Well, what has the organising of that general strike looked like? Um, I've heard that there's been, and you, you said at the start, you know, lots of um, meetings and debates and workers getting together to try and organise the resistance. Can you explain a bit what that's looked like? Yeah, well, so one of the big projects right now for the left in this country is trying to build them the general strike to be as strong as it can possibly be. Um, so that's meant in every single workplace where there are, you know, caters, serious people from the left organisations, they've been trying to organise their workmates and get them to vote. We're definitely going to go out on strike. And also after the strike, we're going to keep fighting. So the other day um, I went to... Hospital Italiano, this kind of big private hospital um, with a socialist who is the main union delegate there. Um, And we went from sector to sector 
uh, talking to the different groups of workers about the importance of the strike, um, why it was happening, what they could do on the day to join in. And it's honestly, it's really mixed. So, you know, one of the sections that we went to was workers in in distribution inside the hospital, taking medicines to different places, packing boxes. A lot of those workers voted for Malay. And so we had this wide-ranging debate about, you know, why is the economic crisis happening? Why does the inflation exist? Does the government give too much money to the poor? Things like that. Then you go to other sections of workers um, in other workplaces and they're just, you know, they want to go out. They really want to go out and fight. Um, I went to a mass assembly of workers at the Ministry of Women um, and the workers in that assembly were saying they wanted to strike sooner than the general strike and have another strike beforehand. So it's really mixed across the working class. It's not straightforward. 55% of people voted for Malay. A bunch of that was a protest vote, but also at the same time, a lot of workers have been convinced of right-wing politics. And so it means that on the one hand, you're trying to mobilise those people and draw them away from the right-wing politics. But the big focus is trying to find workers who are already progressive, already oppose Malay, and saying to them, now's the moment to act. We have to go out on the 24th. Well, compared to most of the world, Argentina has quite a large revolutionary left, lots of like Trotskyist um, and revolutionary groups. And I know you've spent some time with um, some of those groups. What kinds of things are they involved in? One of the things that I that I really want to convey to people is how much this is an open situation. So it's not the same as like the big spontaneous uprisings in, you know, in 2019 in Chile, in Algeria, in Sudan and so on, where there's just this one big burst of anger that then goes on for some time and becomes a movement. This isn't like that. This is a really open situation where sections of the population really, really want to fight and are willing to hold assemblies in their workplaces, hold assemblies in their neighbourhoods, come out into the streets again and again and again, stand up to the police. And then there's big sections of the population that are hanging back, um, that are waiting to see what the actual effects of the attacks are. In this situation, the revolutionary left in Argentina is, is very, very, very significant. So there are multiple seriously sized political parties that are Trotskyists, anti-Stalinist socialists, um, and they're working together to push the situation forward. And and that's meant changing the argument over the course of the last few weeks. So the first argument that the left started making when Malay was elected was we need to stand up to the anti-protest rules that he's putting in immediately. They did that with the big demonstration that happened on the 20th of December. When Malay announced his big packages of attacks that I've talked about, the argument the revolutionary left put forward was we need a general strike and a plan of struggle. The fight has to start now. They pushed hard for a general strike and they did that by, you know, at a big demonstration just after Christmas, the whole revolutionary left uh, came to this big union demonstration with the same banners. All of the left groups had the same slogan on the banner, which was, for a general strike and a plan of struggle. At that big union demonstration just after Christmas, the left led a huge, they call them columns here, like a block of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And all through it are these banners calling for a general strike. Then the general strike gets called by the leadership of the CGT. So the next thing is, how do we keep taking things forward? A plan of struggle. So the demand now is a plan of struggle. Um, and that's something that in different sectors means different things. So they've been going to assemblies of, for example, the cultural sector or the tyre factory workers or certain uh, sections of the poor are having assemblies in their neighbourhoods. They go to these assemblies with specific plans of struggle. So um, we're going to have a demonstration on this day. We're going to have an assembly on this day. We're going to have a strike at this point. And those plans of struggle, the idea is that this will contribute to a general nationwide plan of struggle 
that are that is ongoing and that the unions participate in and all of the different forces um, of kind of the working class and the oppressed. One important thing to understand about the CGT, though, is that the political leadership of the CGT, they're from the same political tradition that has presided over inflation and poverty in government for years. So the previous government was run by the same kind of political movement and tendency that runs the main union federation. So one of the challenges for the left now is trying to build up an independent leadership that can continue to lead the struggle if the CGT tries to sell it out. They've managed to do this so far in a bunch of different ways. So, for example, in the cultural sector, there's this committee called UNITAS, um, United for Culture, and this committee was created by uh, militants from the movement of socialist workers, one of the, the socialist groups, alongside other workers from the sector and independents during a struggle a couple of years ago for funding for the cultural sector. But it became widely known as this kind of important rank-and-file organising body um, that since Malay got elected has called a whole series of very significant protests and has been holding nearly weekly mass assemblies of workers, not only in the capital city but all around the country. And so this rank-and-file committee that is led by revolutionary socialists has become one of the real focal points for the struggle. All the time, people from this rank and file committee are interviewed on the news. Um, they're on TV, they're in the papers, um, and they're putting forward arguments about, you know, we need to keep fighting and so on. So there's this kind of rank and file cultural committee on the one hand that, yeah, is very important. Yesterday, um, it called a big assembly. It was an open assembly at the front of Congress. Um, anyone could come who's kind of associated with the cultural sector and is a worker or a student um, from a cultural institution. At that, there was a bit over a 1,000 people and it had out this debate. The debate basically was on the day, in the general strike, should we and all of the people that we're capable of mobilising march with the leadership of the CGT, united with them, or should we part, be part of the same demonstration but in a separate independent column or block that is led by the left and that is pretty widely and publicly known to be led by the left. So at, at this big assembly, they split off into um, four different they call them commissions, four different groups, um, and those commissions each had the same debate um, that went for hours. Um, I sort of had the impression it would go for about half an hour, but the debate went on for <laughs> many hours and anyone could speak in this debate and person after person just got up, put forward what they thought, um, and then we moved on to the next person. And so um, it was this long debate basically about can we trust the CGT, can we trust the leadership of the unions, or are we better off marching with the left? It was very close, um, the vote of like everyone all put together, but 370 people against 300 voted to march with the left instead of with the union bureaucracy. The thing that's significant about that is, you know, you get together this group of, yeah, 600 people more who are willing to, because over a thousand people came to this, but 600 is how many people actually participated in these debates, put forward their positions, voted, followed the whole thing. 600 people all voted from this sector. No, we're marching with the left. The left is widely known to be revolutionary socialists. Why? That doesn't just happen out of nowhere. It's not just organic sentiment, right? Like there's an element of spontaneity to this, you know, elements of this struggle. But at the same time, people don't just vote to do that because they wake up one day and they're like, oh, I want to maybe all march with the left when the general strike happens. It happened because of the intervention of these socialists who argued there's these problems with the CGT bureaucracy. They've got all these political problems. We think they're going to lead us eventually to a dead end. And we think right now we need to start constructing an independent leadership that can keep the fight going. They won a debate, a very contested debate, 
among hundreds and hundreds of people uh, in favour of that. The same day while that was happening, while we were in this assembly, there was another assembly going on, um, which was for um, tyre factory workers and also sections of like the unemployed. That assembly voted the same way. So they also voted that they're going to participate in um, the, they call it kind of the multi-sectoral left column um, in in this this march. And there's going to be on the day a lot of other groups of neighbourhood assemblies, human rights organisations, social justice campaigns and so on, sections of left-wing workers from different unions. It's going to be all of these different groupings that march with the big multi-sectoral column led by the revolutionary socialists of the left. And that column will have tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. It will show the left has real weight. And that's happened through the, the deliberate efforts of revolutionary socialists with a committed project actually intervening into the situation to, to create this thing. Yeah. Can you, you've kind of pointed to it a little bit, but for people who just think, why are they having all these long, hours-long debates about where to march in a march? Can you just ex- explain, like, why that is important? <laughs> where, why is it important that a bunch of workers don't want to march with um, and identify with the CGT, the union bureaucracy, and want to instead identify with the revolutionary left? It's important because right now we're in the early stages of a movement. Um, there's a movement being created and over the course of that mass movement, there's going to be debates about what to do. Do we go forward? Do we step back? Do we keep fighting Malay? Do we accept a partial victory or a partial reform? Um, and within those debates, what's really going to matter is who has the capacity to lead different arguments, who has the force behind them to win an argument that actually we should go back out into the streets. We shouldn't just take this, uh, you know, maybe partial measure or something. Um, the whole history of the people who run the CGT is of compromising with the government. Even with Malay, the CGT was negotiating with him uh, often secretly from the moment he was elected. Part of why they're doing this strike now is that he cut off negotiations. But if he reopens those negotiations, seems highly possible that the CGT will go back into the negotiations, sit down at the table, they'll draw up some plan together. On the other hand, when that happens, it'll matter, is there a left that has the force to be able to call demonstrations to get people back out in the streets? And that'll mean calling protests, but also ideally what you would want to do is have some sectors where you have enough force, enough implantation um, to be able to call people out on strike. And it's symbolic, isn't it, of where of um, the influence that they already wield amongst the workers that so many groups of workers have voted that they do want mm. to actually march as part of the left. It's a it's a sort of yeah. a way of gauging um, the strength of the revolutionary left and what they're able yeah. to do. It's a way of gauging the strength, but also it's a way of creating the strength because, mm. like, at this demonstration there are now going to be quite a lot of sectors marching with the left that don't usually march with the left, that have never marched with the left before because they've won arguments and had debates in assemblies. And so, yeah, it it is a gauge of the strength, but also this process of winning these arguments, winning people to march with the left, is also about creating the strength of the left in the future. Well, you've mentioned how repressive and terrifying the Argentinian police are, and obviously that's a big part of... Um, Millet and the ruling class trying to push through these attacks is policing the resistance. What's what's that been like, experiencing that in the streets? Yeah, it's really strange. It's really interesting because, I mean, really it's one of the, the wins that the left has had so far here for the moment because, like, all the time you read the papers and there's some new anti-protest law they keep putting them through um, or they keep sort of announcing new versions of them. You know, the other day it was um, if you assemble in a group of more than three people, <laughs> you can potentially be imprisoned for protesting, right, if you didn't get a permit from the government. They've now, like, retracted that one because on the one hand they keep announcing these anti-protest laws, but on the other hand they're totally unenforceable. Like they just 
They cannot enforce them at all. Why can't they enforce them? What do you mean? The government's scared. Like they're scared that if they enforce the anti-protest laws, they would cause a massive movement of riots because in the past that's how they have started mass spontaneous movements is um, there's been a big significant protest, the police go in hard and they repress. At times it's even been they kill someone and then there's just riots and riots and riots and then the government caves in to the demands of the riots. That's how like quite a few movements have gone that direction um, in the last like 20 years. So they're too scared to enforce any of them. So you go to all these protests and there's like all of these cops in black with these massive shields and with like rifles um, or what look like rifles to me and like huge batons, but they just stand there and they let you do whatever you want and people walk up right close to them and are like, oh, go fuck yourself because the cops just like can't do anything even though they're holding these massive batons. And, like, the reason they have the huge shields is because there are so many recent experiences that they've had where, like, the police have had to hold up their shields to protect themselves from people smashing up the streets and throwing cobblestones at them. So, yeah, they keep bringing in anti-protest laws, but they can't enforce anything. And so then they just, the, the way the government deals with it is by, like, putting on a more and more and more theatrical show So the other day I walked past this protest. It was in the night. It was another like pots and pans protest, um, which are called Casarolazzo protests. It was another one of those. It was very small. There was, I counted 60 people. There's 60 people on this corner banging pots and pans. (laughs) And as I was watching, five different police trucks drove up one after the other that are like full of cops and also can be used as paddy wagons to put people into. And then another one drove up that had a water cannon on top of it. And this is for 60 people. There's like, if you put those bands of cops together, there's probably about like 300 or so of them. And then they just drive up in these vans. They kind of get out and that's it. Like that's what the cops do because you've got to be seen to be trying but also you can't really do anything. So, yeah, in other smaller cities it's more difficult um, and they, they are more repressive. Like there's been serious repression in um, smaller cities like Cordoba. It's strange. I guess the final question is like what what do you think it will take to defeat Millet and these, these bills that are economic attacks on the working class and anti-democratic attacks like you said? And, and what are some of What's the kind of main argument of the revolutionary left there about what it's going to take to win? Well, it'll take a very big, very serious, long struggle. Um, I think we're at the start of a long process of struggle that's going to go on for a year or or years. I think on one level it's unlikely that Malay will be either totally victorious or totally defeated in this round. It seems like there could be some attacks that he ends up putting through, some that he ends up um, backing down on. And really the way that the left here is framing it right now isn't like what's the decisive thing right now that's going to defeat Malay. It's more like, okay, we're gearing up for a big, long, long, long battle. Um, How do we prepare for that battle and how do we make sure that the battle starts right now, not in a few months? How do we get it all all started um, and going? It's kind of terrifying. Like on the one hand you discover this country that has not where the working class has not been defeated, like Britain and Australia and the West. Like, it's crazy. Like, they haven't, they've never been defeated. It's shocking. Like, they defeated, the working class defeated a dictatorship and then they had years of governments that have tried to defeat them and have never done it. They've never been able to. The working class movement here is, like, quite incredible. And then now is this moment where the ruling class are really clearly just going going in for the kill, like, like this is their moment like they have because the scale of the economic crisis here and the inflation is totally unsustainable for the bourgeoisie they know that they can't cope with the crisis that's going on here and let it play out anymore and they also know that they have to crush the working class movement if they're gonna get the type of economic restructures that can resolve things yeah one thing is that thing that i said about the working class movement has not been defeated in this country that's for a reason, you know, like it's not just like 
the bourgeoisie here never went as hard as Thatcher or something. They really tried, but the working class movement here is very, very strong. There's a serious, large revolutionary left that does have influence. So it's going to be very difficult for the bourgeoisie to get away with all of this. And they they know that. Malay knows that. They know that they're going to struggle um, and that they're fighting a battle that is is going to be hard for the for the ruling class to win. So, you know, f- for decades there's been these kind of incredible struggles by workers here. Um, the first night that I went out into the streets and was walking along um, with people bashing pots and pans, I kept going up to people and asking them, like, you know, like, what are you, what's going on? Where are we going? <laughs> what's happening? Um, and the thing people said again and again and again was, this is just like 2001. This is just like 2001. In 2001, we brought down five governments in one week, five governments in one week. And they kept saying that again and again. And, you know, like everyone, those people, they they know, they have that memory. They know we can win, you know. The idea that the masses here can actually win things is not confined to history. It's not like you read about his, you read about history in books and you're like, oh, once upon a time, the workers in this country were able to win. That's not how people think. They think, I remember in 2001 when we defeated five governments. I remember in 2017 when we came out on the streets and we forced the police to retreat away from the Congress. I remember, you know, that everywhere people just have these stories of their memory of the time that they were involved in a struggle that won. A lot of young people as well. Abortion, very recently abortion was won in this country by a mass movement. That is really different to what I'm used to, you know. It's it's quite incredible and that gives people a sense of confidence that it's possible that, yes, Malay is putting through attacks, but also we know how to win in this country. We think it's possible and we're going to try and do it. That's what people kind of carry with them um, everywhere they go. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Jasmine. I'm, I'm very jealous that you're in Argentina about to go to what could be a historic general strike and march in a massive revolutionary left-wing block. It's very cool. Uh, but thanks for joining me. Yes, extremely exciting. No, thanks heaps for having me, Emma. Um, great work on the show. Thanks. See ya. Our across the world. Both the movement against Malay in Argentina and the struggle for a free Palestine show the dire need for the left to get organised and rebuild a socialist movement all around the world. And if you want to be a part of that project of challenging capitalism, challenging world imperialism and the rise of the far right, you have to join us at the Marxism Conference in Melbourne uh, on the 28th to the 31st of March. So we wanted to talk a bit about some of the international guests coming to the conference who um, are on the front lines of some of the most important struggles around the world. Yeah, well, very relevant to the discussion we just had with Jasmine. Uh, We're very excited that there'll be a number of activists joining us at the conference from the MST, which is the Movimiento Socialista de los Trabajadores. Yeah, Um, that means (laughs) the uh, socialist movement of workers. Uh, It's one of, um, it's a Trotskyist group and it's part of what is really probably the world's biggest Trotskyist movement. Um, and they've been involved in all of the struggles we've been talking about today. So I think this is going to be a really uh, important session at the conference, hearing from these comrades. You know, they're in the midst of a huge crisis and a huge struggle against the the Argentinian working class, uh, sorry, against the Argentinian ruling class, and there are both opportunities for revolutionaries to find an audience and serious challenges as well. So really exciting to hear from them. Yeah, another really important speaker is uh, Tufik Haddad. He's a Palestinian socialist um, author and journalist based in East Jerusalem um, in occupied Palestine. Um, he's written some really important work um, on the struggle against Israel's occupation and also really importantly um, on internal debates within uh, Palestinian, amongst Palestinian activists. Um, so he as a journalist, he wrote um, in East Jerusalem, he was a witness to Israel's attempts at ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah in 2021, um, you know, a very famous uh, kind of moment um, of the escalation um, of Israel's ethnic cleansing that people uh, listening might be aware of. 
Um, uh, some other uh, important works of his, uh, he's really importantly brought a class perspective um, uh, to a critical approach of analysing the Palestinian leadership. So his book, Palestine Limited, Neoliberalism and Nationalism in the Occupied Territories, and I think that book really demonstrates the need for a socialist perspective um, in actually looking at the struggle to liberate Palestine and why uh, these pro-capitalist forces like the Palestinian Authority um, have played such a disastrous role. So really important that he's going to be uh, contributing to our conference. See you at the conference. Until next time, we have a world to win. Uh-huh.